been uh, an honor to be with you and uh, to be with Michael, uh, that my name would be associated with him, uh, flatters me, honors me. We have uh, so much in common, and uh, I just was thrilled that you would invite me to be here today and to see some of you that I haven't seen for a while and some for the first time. And uh, I've wanted to be a blessing and pray that on this last occasion uh, together, uh, God might be pleased to use me. Would you open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything. From the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now come down to verse 1 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court and are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it, for it, all of it. And he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister or poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Come over to chapter 5, verse 13. We're covering a lot of territory this evening. I will try to give a little bit of attention to it all because I'm dealing with this subject of faith as found in James. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person with, has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the teaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind who hears this word, that their perception of what is said will be as you intend, that there'll be no misinterpretation, misunderstanding, misapplication, and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed and might be your instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. Make this a moment that will be precious in our eyes that we have a breakthrough on certain issues that perhaps for some have been difficult for a long time. Increase our faith, and may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pick up where I left off previously because we dealt with the subject of wisdom a little bit. And uh, you will recall that having said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, then he adds a word. And if I'm honest with you, I wish he hadn't said this. I really wish he hadn't said it. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. I feel at that point, I have to get off the train. I don't know that I have prayed with faith and no doubting many times. I want to say, if ever, I, I may have, but certainly not often. And so as soon as he says that, I think, oh dear, uh, that leaves me out. He says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And I can tell you right now, if you knew how often I felt like that. And so this verse I find about as intimidating as any passage in, in, in the book of James. Now, we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. 
what Calvin called the analogy of faith. And uh, let me point out, in 1 John 5, chapter 14 and 15, John puts it like this. He puts two ifs, two ifs, when he says, first of all, if this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's a big if. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In order to be heard, you've got to ask according to his will. Then he adds another if. And that if says, if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. So there are two ifs. One if, if you pray in the will of God. The second if, if you know that you just prayed in the will of God and you know that what you've asked for, you're going to get because you have that assurance right then. Now, James doesn't say that. James just says, you must ask in faith with no doubting. Now, there's another passage I want to point out, and that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 24. And this is where Jesus says, uh, have faith in God. But I want you to hear this in context. Matthew eleven twenty-four. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. And then just before that, he says, have faith in God, back in verse 22, and then adds, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will come. And then he says, whatever you ask for, ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, just before Jesus said that, when he says, have faith in God, uh, any Greek uh, student knows that the Greek literally reads, have the faith of God. Well, now, the proof that it means faith of God is that Jesus would say, speak to a mountain and say, be removed. And if you don't doubt, then what you have just prayed for will happen. Now, that would be the faith of God. That has to be the faith of God. How many of you have stood in front of a mountain and just said, move? And you watched it go. Would all who have seen that happen, would you please stand? Ah, oh, you see, but that's meaning figuratively. That if you're a, you've got a heavy mountain ahead of you, and I've seen that happen, and I've had people say to me, I believe you, but we're talking about a literal mountain. Stand in front of any mountain and just speak to it to be removed. Now, if God did that, it would happen. Because with the faith of God, he just says it. For example, he said in Genesis 1, let there be light. Did you think, oh dear, what have I said? What, what, what if no light comes? <laughs> it just came. Or when Jesus says to the man, uh, stretch out your hand. Then he says, oh dear, I've said this in front of everybody. Oh, I please hope that arm stretches out. Come on, come on, please, please, don't embarrass me. No, he just says, do it. Because when God speaks, he does so in a perfect faith. 
Well, we're talking now about faith without doubting. And James says you can ask for wisdom, but when you ask for it, you must believe and not doubt. And as I said, I feel disqualified. <laughs> I just don't think, well, why bother to ask for wisdom? Because I, right now, don't have faith without doubting. Well, but there are other scriptures I want to point out uh, where the man said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus did not rebuke him for saying that. Or once the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. He did not rebuke them for saying that. Now, it needs to be pointed out that James is not referring to how we are saved. You see, faith that saves is relying on the blood of Jesus. It is not great faith that saves, but faith in a great Savior. So that is true when it comes to saving faith. But now this is a word addressed to Christians. They've already been saved. Whatever is James saying here? Is he encouraging us to believe that we could have faith like that? Well, or is it that he's stretching our faith? I only know that I feel myself soundly rebuked the moment James says, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Well, you may be shocked, but he just described me then. And then he pours salt on the wound. He says, that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Oh dear, I need wisdom so much. Lord, I please, I need wisdom. But now I don't have a chance because I, I'm doubting. I'm doubting. I know you can do it, but I, I'm kind of doubting that you will, at least right now, and I need it so much right now. Well, now, the funny thing is, I do know God has answered that prayer. But it wasn't because I prayed with a perfect faith. It's because God overrules. Or as James put it later, mercy triumphs over judgment. But then James is not finished. He even says more. I wish he'd stop. He says that if you doubt, you are a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. And I think, oh, is there any hope for me? I'm even in the ministry. I'm preaching the gospel. I wouldn't want anybody to know that I'm having these thoughts. Well, here is the key, I believe, to this passage. James is not saying that you won't ever have wisdom if you don't pray with perfect faith. He's only saying you don't know for sure you're going to get it. He's saying you've ruled out expectancy of it because the only way you can know that you have received it is because you pray with no doubt. Now, the same thing is true when you come to the prayer of faith in James 5. He says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. 
Well, at Westminster Chapel, we had healing services every week. And we had a surprising number of people healed. And some of them were when I was involved in the prayer team. Now, it's possible, since it's always two or more that should pray over the sick. That way you don't know for sure who prayed the prayer of faith. And no one can take any credit and gloat, say, oh, God heard my prayer. Uh, that's why it's two or more. So it could be that when I've seen healings, it was the other person's faith. It, very possible that it was. But I've got a suspicion that he uh, didn't have any more faith than I, and yet we've seen people healed. How do you explain this? Well, I can explain it this way. That behind my imperfect faith is one who is interceding for me behind the scenes in perfect faith. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, the life I live in the flesh, I live in faith, namely that of the Son of God. One of the most forgotten teachings in the church today in the whole world is the teaching of the faith of Jesus, his own literal personal faith. Jesus lived by faith. He had the Spirit without measure. You and I have the Spirit in measure. And it's only to the degree we have a greater level of the Spirit that we have a greater level of faith. So in order to pray with perfect faith, you have to have the highest level of the Spirit or you can't do that. You see, faith is not something you work up. Uh, you don't get psyched out or psyched up or uh, have a time of worship and you, you, you feel your faith rising and you reach a certain level and you think, oh, now I've got it, I've got it. Uh, this is psychological faith. Faith that comes from the Holy Spirit is that which God enables you to do so that Jesus did not have the Spirit in measure. He had the Spirit without any limit. John 4, 34. So that when he prayed, he prayed with a perfect faith. I might point out that this is what lies behind a verse in Romans 1, 17, which King James quotes it exactly right. Uh, some versions gloss over it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And a lot of people don't know why it says that. Why faith to faith? The answer is but faith of Jesus Christ must be ratified by our faith or we will not be saved because his faith was a perfect faith. Everything that Jesus did for us is put to our credit the moment we believe. He was baptized for us. He believed for us. He kept the law for us. He trusted God for us. He did everything perfectly so that the moment we transfer the trust that we had in our good works to what he did for us on the cross, all of the righteousness of Jesus is put to our credit. Now, had Paul said, the righteousness of God is revealed by the faith of Jesus Christ, full stop, end of story, then that would mean all those for whom Jesus died would be saved. And since he died for all, all would be saved. And that is the teaching of a universalist, that all will be saved because he died for all. But that isn't what Paul said. He said, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. His faith must be ratified by our faith 
or we would never be saved. Our faith, though, is not a perfect faith. It is a faith in the great Savior who had a perfect faith. So the Apostle Paul not only used that to show how we are converted, but he revealed how he himself lives. He says, I live by the faith of the Son of God, which means that he's not trusting his own faith in all that he does, but he's leaning on the great faith of Jesus. And therefore, when I live by his faith, I don't need to worry if my faith is not at an optimum optimum level uh, 24 hours a day, because I'm living by his faith. And even at the right hand of God, Jesus is interceding for me. And so what tests us is when we are challenged. And the disciples, uh, when Jesus said, uh, uh, we, we can't say, let these 5,000 people go home, uh, they're hungry, they're going to get weak, and, uh, and so Jesus said to his disciples, uh, have them to sit down, we're going to feed them, and you're going to feed them. And the disciples said, Lord, we can't do that. We've only got uh, five loaves and, and, and two fish. Jesus did not rebuke them. He did not rebuke his disciples for saying that. He just says, look, have them sit and you watch what I do. And Jesus did it all. It wasn't the faith of the disciples that caused the 5,000 to be fed. It was the perfect faith of Jesus. He did it. And so in the Christian life, we all live by the faith of the Son of God. But our faith is tested, and trials test the genuineness of our faith. And so Jesus uh, has the perfect faith, and we rely on his faith. So that when the sick call for the elders of the church, and they're looking to us, the only faith the sick need is to ask us to pray for them. They're not required to have faith that they're going to be healed. All they do is ask for the elders to pray for them. Now, here we are, anointing them with oil, and the onus is on us to pray the prayer of faith. And we think, Lord, who am I to pray for this person? Now, I've had people come to me and ask me to pray for them. Remember, uh, I was reminded today, uh, there's a lady here who heard me preach uh, at clan gathering in Scotland. Uh, three or four years ago, I was there, and after one of the services, lady came up to me and said, um, would you please pray for me? I have a splitting headache. I can hardly hold my head up. Well, I just uh, put my hands on her forehead, and I said, in Jesus' name, be healed. And I was kind of in a hurry. And I said, God bless you, and I went on. I would have forgotten that. Would have forgotten it completely. Four months later, she wrote me a letter. And she said, all my life, I've had a problem with sinus headaches. That week, that week was the worst week I've ever, ever had. That day, the worst headache I ever had. And she reminded me, you may recall I asked you to pray for me. She said, when you prayed for me, I felt nothing. Then she says, but three or four hours later, I realized the headache was gone. And she said, that was four months ago, and it's never come back. 
I was the most surprised of all. I did not have any faith that I know of. That tells me that there's something bigger than my small faith at work. And so when men, elders, ordinary men, they're not the Elijahs of this world, are asked to pray for the sick, they think, who am I to do this? And it's the prayer of faith that's going to raise up the sick. And one hopes the other elder has that faith. And he hopes you do. The truth is, we've seen people healed. Never once have I consciously prayed the prayer of faith and had somebody healed. But I've seen a number of people healed. Here's what that tells me. That although James says, ask for wisdom and never doubt, He's not saying you won't have wisdom if you do doubt. He's saying you don't have that assurance that the mountain is going to go as soon as you speak to it. He's saying you may not have the assurance that what you've asked for you're going to receive. Because behind our praying is one at the right hand of God interceding with a perfect faith. And he uses this phrase, faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 1. Now, all versions today, it's, it's a long story. Uh, Michael and I, we, we talk about this all the time. Uh, modern versions don't say faith of Christ. King James does. This is one of the best reasons for keeping the old-fashioned King James Version. Uh, I'm not, I don't use it, but I, it, the translation often is, is the best. It's just archaic language. But the Greek says... Show no partiality uh, of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now he talks about your faith being the, like Jesus' faith because Jesus was not partial. He didn't say, well, I'm, I'm going to uh, heal all wealthy people here, uh, all that have a high income. Uh, come here, you can stand here. I'm not going to be able to pray for everybody, but all the rich and the famous, you qualify. You that have nice cars, you that are upper middle class, we're going to pray for you. Can you imagine Jesus doing this? The very opposite. The poor people came. The common people heard him gladly. And, and they knew that this is one place where they could go, and Jesus accepted them as they are. Now, we are to have that kind of faith. And so he is rebuking now these Jewish Christians because if a person comes in and wearing fine clothes, he's just come from Herod's and he gets out of his Bentley, we say, oh, look who's here today. Come in. We are so glad to have you. Do sit down here. And then you see the poor man and, and you see the trap and you think, oh, dear. Oh, what are we going to do? Uh, sir, uh, excuse me. Look, would you mind sitting over here? God bless you. As if he doesn't get the message. Did you ever hear how the Salvation Army was born? William and Catherine Booth brought their friends to church. It was the Methodist church. And it turned out that these people they were bringing were getting converted. But they were not upper middle class. 
And the trouble is they were bringing their friends, same type, the low socioeconomic part of, of that part of England, and they were outgrowing the others in the church. And so the pastor of the church said to William and Catherine Booth, you mind that your friends sit over here together? Be nice. If all of you, it would be lovely if you just sit together. Well, they knew what was happening. The trouble is that more people were getting converted and they were taking over half the church. Uh, but they began to feel the pressure and finally took the hint, went across town, unfurled their banner, blood and fire, and the Salvation Army was born. You see, reaching out to those that nobody wants to have anything to do with, that's often the way a new denomination is formed. You start with the poor. And that is what James is saying to them. And he says, how dare you show such partiality? And then he uses this phrase. And thankfully, the ESV translates the Greek literally correct. You have dishonored the poor man. You've dishonored the poor man. Many versions say you've dishonored the poor, and it sounds like it's plural. And because it sounds plural, you miss the meaning of James 2.14. James 2.14 comes with this question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Now, this verse, James 2.14, you must know straight away, is not referring to one's own saving faith. This was Martin Luther's great error. He jumped the gun. He should have known from the Greek that the him shall, can faith save him, H-I-M, in the Greek is accusative masculine singular and could not refer to the person who has faith. It's talking about someone else. So all you need to do is go back to verse 6. And you see this Greek word, potokon, that means poor man, accusative, masculine, singular. Now, had James been saying that faith without works will not save you, he would have gone right against Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And had James been saying, unless you look after the poor, uh, your faith won't save you, because you've got to look after the poor, join that which would be a good work, and that will get you to heaven. Had James said that, he would have gone right against all that Paul taught, and not only that, probably nobody would be saved. Ever neglected the poor man? Have you ever neglected the poor man? If you have, if you take the traditional view of James 2.14, you ain't saved, and you can't be, because you have to have works matched to your faith to be saved, according to the traditional view. Now, I've heard all the different teachings on it, and the way people try to wiggle out and say, oh, all James is saying is that if you really have faith, you're going to have good works. That is not what he says, though. That's a good way to, to, to get out of it. But that isn't what James says. 
What James is saying here is what he's been saying throughout this chapter. People think James has changed the subject when he gets to verse 14. He has not only not changed the subject, he's still talking about the poor man. Everything he says right after that, about loving your neighbor, showing partiality, all this. He says, he's still talking about the poor man. He has not changed the subject. We may wish he'd changed the subject because we don't like to be told that you've got to look after the poor man. That makes us very nervous. And so James says, here's your problem, Jerusalem church. You've dishonored the poor man. That's what you've done. You've become judges of evil thoughts. And you've tried to impress rich people. And you've wanted to give them special privileges. And then James says, as it were, oh, by the way, has it worked? Has it worked? You know what? When you aim for the rich, you lose the rich, you lose the poor. Try to save the rich. They'll see you coming. And they'll see that you're a phony, that you're only wanting their money. And James says, you've even given the, the rich man a new vocabulary. He now blasphemes that name by which you're called. In the meantime, you've lost the poor man. You'll lose the rich. You'll lose every way. Now he's going to build up the case for concentrating on that poor man. And though... Uh, you look at these verses, and because of the paragraphs in translations, you may think he's changed the subject. He has not. So when he now draws the conclusion of this discourse on treating the poor man with dignity, he says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Accusative, masculine, singular, goes right back. Can faith save that poor man. You know what? Commentary, commentaries, teachers, preachers, theologians hastily assume that James changed the subject. He has not. The hymn of James 2.14 is the poor man of James chapter 2, verse 6. I'll tell you a story. Back in 1979... I felt led to preach from James. I never preached on James in my life. But I thought, Lord, I cannot go through James until I understand chapter 2, verse 14. I knew all the translations. I knew all the explanations. I'd read through the Puritans for three years at Oxford. I knew how they treated James 2, 14, and I was utterly unconvinced, but I didn't know what it did mean. I thought, I'm going to wait till I understand James 2.14. I felt a strong impulse. Start now. When you get to 2.14, I'll tell you what it means. Well, I came to 2.13. and was no closer to understanding. And I thought, what am I going to do? That week, just before, one Monday morning, I had a breakthrough of breakthroughs. It was arguably the greatest exegetical breakthrough of my whole ministry. When I saw what I just told you, that the hymn is not indicating whether the person 
himself is saved, but whether the person who claims to be saved is reaching out to the poor man. Can faith save that poor man? Answer, no. And when you see that he's talking about faith saving the poor man, it won't, because your works, your works have, will be what the poor man notices. It won't be that you say, I want you to know that I believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the poor man is supposed to say, oh, good, I want to be a Christian now. No, it doesn't impress him. Our orthodoxy, our soundness, that doesn't impress the poor man. What impresses the poor man is that we get our hands dirty and we put our arm around him and we show love for him. That is what impresses him. That's what saves him. That's what James is saying. And you know what? You read the rest of the chapter. You don't have to do any exegetical gymnastic. It all just follows. It just reads by itself. Now, one more little P.S. that I'll share with you. Those were the days when I had the privilege, a privilege than which no greater can be conceived, of sitting at the feet of Martin Lloyd-Jones every Thursday for two hours. And so I was wondering, what will he say? And my heart was beating in my chest because I knew that he had taken the traditional view. And I knew that I didn't agree with him. And you don't want to cross Dr. Lloyd-Jones many times. But that day, I went for it. When I finished, he said, you've convinced me. It was a great moment for me. Had he not said that, I would have gone to the pulpit anyway because I was that convinced. Several months later, got a letter from a man by the name of Michael Eaton. Anybody hear about that name? And I wasn't prepared for this. I hardly took notice of you, Michael. All those times you were at Westminster Chapel, I remember you. But we didn't talk any that I know of. Maybe shook your hand. Uh, remember something about Africa? I, I, I didn't know you. But I got a letter. And Michael said, R.T., you don't realize how right you are. And he began to show me uh, from other ways of looking at the text in the Greek, translating it back into Hebrew. And it was the most thrilling time for me. That's why I say he's my greatest encourager. Because I'd gone out on a limb that day. And the thing is, James is simply saying, your faith, your sound theology will not save that poor man. Only deeds will do it. The faith that works, that is, helps others, is faith joined by deeds. Saying, God bless you, isn't enough. I remember uh, one night... Arthur, blessed night, stayed up late, and he was telling me a story how he'd been witnessing in Sunset Strip in Hollywood, and it was time he was going to go home, and he was dead tired, and as he drove down the road, he saw a tramp sitting there by the curb. It may have been a tramp, he just saw him there. And uh, Arthur rode down the window, gave him a tract, said, God bless you, Jesus loves you, and 
went on down the road. Arthur said, I can't do this. He turned around, went back, made a U-turn, pulled up to the man, took him home, fed him, let him sleep in his house. The man was converted in the ministry today, by the way. You see, we mean well when we say Jesus loves you. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you something parenthetically. I said that to Yasser Arafat. I said, Jesus loves you. You know what Arafat did? He went like that. And I realized that's not what you should say. I waited 15 minutes later at the appropriate moment. I said, Rais, I love you. Tears filled his eyes. It's so easy to say something that's going to make us uncomfortable. We don't want to talk like that and show that we really care. And you see, our orthodoxy is not what impresses that poor man out there. And I wonder what would happen if you all took this seriously. You know, I preached this in South Africa. I preached it at 3CI, uh, where they've got their token black people there. I said, do you want to shake South Africa? I said, this is the message. And they, they said they loved it, you know. And maybe you are going to say you love it. I just know one thing. It's not enough just to be sound in our orthodoxy and say, well, I know I'm a Christian because of my life has been changed and you're taking the James 2.14 traditional view. If you've got works, that must mean you're saved. James isn't even talking about whether you are saved. He's not, that's not the issue. He's talking about what impact you're going to make. Then he gives two illustrations. He says, take, for example, Abraham. He says, was not Abraham, was not Abraham justified by works? Now, this is a time when the translator could so easily have used a different word than justified. They did it in 1, Peter, 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. King James says justified by the Spirit. Same exact word. But modern versions know that Jesus wasn't justified by the Spirit, but he was vindicated by the Spirit. What that means is that Jesus got his vindication internally. The Holy Spirit witnessed to Jesus. He knew that he had the Father's pleasure. And he didn't need people vindicating him to encourage him. Can you imagine Jesus needing your approval to make him think he did all right? Let's say, as soon as he finished the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Peter, John, come here. Quick question. How'd I do? What did you think of that sermon? Did you like the part where I said, uh, you know, blessed are the meek? Wasn't that good? Uh, how about the part when I said, uh, if you hate your brother, uh, you, you've committed murder? You think... You think it sounded all right? You don't think I offended anybody, do you? Can you imagine? Jesus didn't need that. He was vindicated internally. That's what 1 Timothy 3.16 says. That's what it means. The translator should have used that same word here. Abraham 
Abraham was vindicated. That is, his faith was vindicated because God extended his mercy upon Abraham and imputed to him righteousness. And it was by faith alone. And then he did it the same thing with Rahab. You see, Rahab the harlot, uh, you may say, well, when did she show faith? Well, I'll tell you, in, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, Rahab said to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The fear of the Lord has fallen upon you. That showed her faith right there. She knew that God was with them. But then James goes on to show how Rahab showed her faith through her works and hiding the spies. It wasn't the way she was saved. It was the way her faith was vindicated. And so God entrusted Abraham with righteousness. But then you could say God was vindicated. You see, here is God imputing to Abraham this righteousness. And Abraham is a sun worshiper. And suddenly he's believing. And suddenly he's doing what God says. And maybe somebody could accuse God. How dare you? How dare you impute righteousness to this man? You don't know how he's going to turn out. And they could have said that about Rahab. But you see, God puts us on our honor when he imputes righteousness to us. He did this with Abraham. Abraham became known as the friend of God and continued to obey the Lord. And you could say that Abraham's works vindicated not only Abraham's faith, but God who entrusted Abraham and gave him this perfect righteousness. And so with all of us, we are on our honor. We're put on our honor to please God by obedience. We are not saved by our obedience. We are not saved by our sanctification. Our sanctification is our way of saying, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. So when we get to heaven, we won't say, well, I know I'm going to make it because I've been living a holy life and I've just come off of a 40-day fast. As if that sort of thing makes you more righteous. You know, the moment we believe, we're as righteous as we're ever going to get. I've been a Christian now since I was six years old. And that means that I have been saved about 69 years. Does that mean I'm 69 times more righteous than a person who's only been saved one year? No. I'm not one bit more righteous in God's sight today than I was 69 years ago. Because perfect righteousness is put to my credit the moment I believe. So we're not saved by works. But if we're going to save the lost and we're going to reach those outside... We must have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ without partiality and not trying to select the kind of people we want to come to our church. You do that and you will grieve the Holy Spirit. You will never see God move in this place. But when you start reaching out for those that nobody wants to have anything to do with and you're willing to be identified with anybody and you're not trying to impress your worldly friends or your uh, backslidden relatives or whoever that uh, you're going to a good church because of the type of people that you're seeing converted. Get over that. Be willing to reach out to anybody, any human being, red, yellow, black, white. They are precious in his sight. And you start doing that. And I'm telling you, 
This place won't even begin to hold the people. God will so honor you. That's what James is saying to these people. And they'd got it all wrong. Now, you may want to ask the question, would James have worded this chapter differently had he been fully familiar with Paul as Paul unfolds Galatians and Romans? Would James have worded it differently? Possibly. But even as the epistle of James stands, there's absolutely no contradiction between James and Paul. They cohere perfectly. If you say that James is saying you've got to have faith and works to be saved, then you've got a problem. That is not what James is saying. And he's challenging us to reach out to those who are watching us. And they want to see if there's anything different about us. Why should I have what you've got? Reminds me of Arthur Blessed carrying the cross in Amman, Jordan. Hot summer afternoon. He laid the cross down. Notice the place was heavily guarded. He said, I was amazed they even let me get in to this Holiday Inn Hotel where he just put the cross down. He said, I was thirsty, looking for something to drink. The bar was downstairs. They said, go downstairs. I ordered a Coke. Because I'll never forget the Coke. The bartender put a cherry in it. He said, uh, drank the Coke, and it was time to go. I reached to my wallet, and, and the bartender says, your drink's paid for. Oh, who, who paid for it? That man down there at the end of the counter. Arthur said, well, I'll, I'll go thank him. It was an Arab sheikh. Arthur goes to him and says, uh, well, I hear you pay for my coat. Thank you. The Arab sheikh just looked at him and said, I want what you've got. Arthur said, what do you mean? I want what you've got. I've been watching you, your face. You've got a smile. Look at all those people. Not a, not a person here smiling. I want what you've got. Arthur said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I carry a cross around the world. Turned out that that Arab sheikh was the high official with OPEC. That's why the place was heavily guarded. He took Arthur to the top floor. And he witnessed to every oil leader in the Middle East, led many of them to the Lord. All because that Arab sheikh saw something different in Arthur, his countenance. You never know when people are watching you. And they're looking for somebody they might believe is not a fraud and is the real deal that is 24 karat gold. And this is our responsibility, says James. And that's the way you're going to reach out. Only when you don't simply say, God bless you. But you show it. Now, the prayer of faith, when it comes to the healing, is the same principle. So that it's Jesus' faith that lies behind our little faith. You see, faith without doubting will bring you wisdom. And faith without doubting will see people healed. But what if 
you need wisdom so much that you feel like you're doubting and you're wanting somebody to be healed. And you think, who am I to pray the prayer of faith? Well, the question is, can a person be healed without this kind of faith? Well, I only know is, as I said, I've had seen people healed time and time again. We were amazed. One Sunday night, a lady from Chile in broken English came up to me and she said, heal my husband. Last week you healed me. Now heal my husband. I said, wait, wait, wait. What, what do you mean last week I healed you? Oh, she said, uh, I sat there. You and another man. Oil, oil. And uh, I said, what, 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 what we healed of? That uh, many years ago in Chile, I had a snake bite on my leg, my left leg, huge, big, big, huge. Last Monday morning, no doctor, no medicine, same size as the other leg, both legs same. Now, heal my husband. Well, what's wrong with you, sir? He says, I don't sleep. But I haven't had a, a night's sleep in 25 years. Would you pray for me? An elder joined me. Don't know who it was. Might have been you, Ernie. Anoint him with oil. If you ask me, did I have perfect faith? I never felt so helpless in all my life. We just anointed him with oil. I guess we should have said, in the name of Jesus, come out of him. I didn't do that. Just anointed him with oil. He came back the following Sunday. He said, slept three nights this week. Would you have another go? We prayed again. Following week, he said, seven nights sleep. He couldn't believe it. Waited six months before we let him give his testimony. I don't recall praying with perfect faith. So when James says, pray without doubting, he's only saying, don't expect it unless you pray like that. Doesn't mean you can't have it. He's a gracious God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because behind my weak faith is his perfect faith, interceding for me. And so when Jesus prays at the right hand of God, it's with a perfect faith. He doesn't say, now, Father, uh, is R.T. here? Really would like it if you'd help him. No, he just intercedes, perfect faith. And so Paul says, I live by that. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Best illustration I can give is about our son, T.R. We call him T.R. We moved from Oxford to London. And just before we moved to London, we'd moved him from Oxford School in Headington to Brackley and then got him into an American school so that when we go back to America after finishing at Oxford, T.R. would now be in the American system. Now we come into London because... They've asked me to stay at Westminster Chapel for six months. And uh, so they said, we will pay for his American school in London. So they did. Now T.R. goes from Headington to Brackley to London. American school now, again, getting him ready for America. After I'm at Westminster Chapel three months, they said, could we vote on you to become our minister? And we had no more thoughts of that. You cannot imagine how utterly distant that was from us. We'd already sent our clothes back to America. 
PR's new bicycle, souvenirs, books, just living, waiting for my Viva to go back home. And now they vote on us, 92% of the vote. We bring everything back to America, from America to England, PR's bicycle, clothes, souvenirs. But now we move to Ealing. It means the fourth school, PR. I take him to Montpelier School first day, and he won't get out of the car. I said, TR, you need to get out. There's your school. He wouldn't go. I said, TR, look at these kids. These are going to be your friends. They're having more fun to get them on the playground. He was nine years old. I knew I had a crisis on my hands. He wasn't going. I said, TR, you have to. I said, TR, look at me. Today, I will be praying for you all day long, nonstop. At any moment, when you get anxious, remember, Daddy's praying for you right then. When anybody bullies you, you don't know, or whatever, Daddy's praying for you. If you're a school teacher, you don't like her. Right then, Daddy's praying for you. At any moment, just remember, all day long, I'm praying for you. He opened the door, got out. I can see him now walking to the playground, never looked back. He wasn't trusting his faith, his prayers. He was leaning on my faith. He was living that day all day long on my faith, my praying for him. That's what Paul meant. I live by the faith of the Son of God because he interceded with a perfect faith so that when I lack wisdom, I say, Father, just hear the prayer of Jesus who compensates for my lack of faith. Help my unbelief. When I pray for healing for people, I just trust that his big hand is on my little hand. And so with that in mind, James then brings up the subject of the poor man and your faith being joined by works that will impress that man. I could go on for another nine minutes according to the time I've got. I want to give nine minutes now. Michael, come here. Come here. Don't argue with me. I am your elder. I am the senior man in this group. You encouraged me so much uh, when you wrote me that letter. And I just thought it might bless the people if you were to elaborate on that. And let's see, what else do I need? You just stand here. Just stand here. Do as I say now. This is the first time you've ever obeyed me. <laughs> the whole lot. Just pray to the whole lot. I, I, I just, I want Michael to to tell you anything that's on his heart. If there's nothing, just close in prayer. Go on. <laughs> All right, can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> well, the reason why Archie has asked me to uh, wind up a little bit is, is because he knows how much James 2 means to me. I, I guess when I was a young Christian and uh, 
when I was first saved and in my 20s I began preaching the books of scripture that meant uh, the most to me I suppose was Romans and Ephesians and the Sermon on the Mount, the greater books that Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to preach on. I guess they were the ones that I knew so well. But uh, the time came when I began to work through James and uh, Heard, I'd heard R.T. expounding, used to get his cassettes from Westminster. And um, I began in Nairobi Baptist Church to expound through James. And a uh, big congregation, when I first went there, it was about 1,300. When I left there, it was about 2,000. In fact, I had a big congregation growing every day, 200 outside that couldn't get in. You used to have to have speakers outside for them to hear what was going on. And I began to uh, preach through James. And uh, it changed my life. It wasn't so much James 2.14 that changed my life. It was James 2.5. I, just preaching through uh, James, I got to uh, James chapter 2, verse 5, which says, has not God chosen the poor? And uh, there are some verses in the Bible which are difficult because they're difficult to understand. There are some verses in the Bible which are difficult because they're not difficult to understand. <laughs> and James 2.5 is one of those verses which is, is not difficult to understand. I mean, a child can understand James 2.5. Has not God chosen the poor? That's all there is to it. God, God's elect are mainly poor. God has chosen the poor. And most of the people who believe are, are in fact poor over the world. And uh, Paul can say to the Corinthians, not, not many of you were rich or noble or high-born. God, God chose those who are nothing to put to shame, those who, are some, those who think they're something. So I was preaching this in Nairobi Baptist Church, but the only trouble was that I was preaching, has not God chosen the poor to the richest church in Kenya? I mean, Nairobi Baptist Church was, a, was an elitist church. President Moy used to come once or twice a year, uh, Katili Mwenda was the uh, head of the law school. He had cabinet ministers. I mean, the elite of the country were all in Nairobi Baptist Church, which was just a kilometer away from the Houses of Parliament and so on. And uh, it, was, it was the Westminster Chapel of, of Nairobi. So here was I preaching to this, this uh, elitist church on, has not God chosen the poor? And uh, so I just carried on preaching. I was just... Uh, faithful to the scriptures and uh, as much as I could be and preached uh, James 2 right through it and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 God, God has chosen those who are nothing those who, who are, who are low-born and uh, not especially educated had, they don't have the wisdom of this world I was just preaching on it and uh, it was a great challenge to me and uh, it, it uh, sort of distressed me because here was I literally preaching to the, to the wealthiest congregation easily, easily in Kenya um, on has not God chosen the poor? And uh, I, w- I would say it week by week, going through James. I would say things like this: If if you if you are rich, and, and they all were, I, I don't know how you got in here this morning. This this is a poor man's club. What are you doing here? Uh, I mean, I would preach that way every every Sunday. There was one cabinet minister who was so stunned by this, he went out and brought the bought the cassette and put it in his car. In those days when, when we had cassettes, not CDs, he uh, put his cassette in the car and he played it incessantly, driving all around with his, with his chauffeur and to his parliamentary business. He, he played incessantly. This, this rich parliamentarian, cabinet minister, would play incessantly. God has chosen the poor. God has chosen the poor. What, who are you? What are you doing here? This is a poor man's club. Why, why did you come? 
And uh, I used to preach, the only way, if you're not poor, the only way you can get in to salvation is to identify with the poor. If, if, if you're not poor, well, you better come into the poor man's club because that's what the church is. The church of Jesus Christ is a poor man's club, if, if I can put it that way. And uh, if, if you're not poor, I don't, don't know how you got in because it's, it's not specially for you. It's for poor people. God has chosen the poor. What, what are you doing here? I would say to them, and I'm saying to you as well. <laughs> and so I carried on preaching that way. But... Um, then the point uh, came in my life when I thought uh, I ought to sort of act on this and do something about it. And it was that that took me to South Africa. I mean, many of you here from South Africa, you know of me a little bit from South Africa. But this is what took me to South Africa. I began to feel that I ought to move. It's also what took me to Crisco Fellowship. I'll tell you about that in a second. But um, I began to say, where, where can I go to the place where is the worst discrimination in the world? And this was in the days before apartheid had been legally abolished. So the, obvi- the immediate obvious answer was South Africa. Where, where is the place where poor people really are brushed aside and uh, where they're not welcomed in many of the churches? And it made me want to go to South Africa. So I began to look for churches in and around South Africa, thinking that wanted pastors, thinking that I would transfer to one. And I preached in a lot, I went down there from time to time and preached in a lot of them. Some of them quite flourishing churches, some of them a bit elitist themselves. I would preach in Florida at the end of the, end of the reef in, uh, in uh, Johannesburg area. I would preach in quite elitist churches in Cape Town. But there was one of them that really appealed to me. And that was a little church which had a couple of hundred people in it. And uh, the reason why it appealed to me is because it was the nearest church to, Ruve, to, to uh, Alexandra Township, which you will know if you come from South Africa. It was the only township which had survived the forced removals of the, the old apartheid government. They would, they would clear all these uh, black folk out of the towns. So there was one of them that was so big, Alexandra Township, it was so big that there was no way in which the apartheid government could ever clear it out. So it was the only black township inside a white city. Uh, Johannesburg being a city just for white people in those days. But Alexandra Township being inside it. And uh, Ruville Baptist Church was just a kilometer away. And I thought, I'll go there. And I'll start practicing James chapter 2. So I, I left... Uh, I told, I told them I'd come back to Nairobi in a few years. I didn't think I'd go away for more than two years, but uh, that, that didn't quite work out. So that's what I said. Uh, so I said I was leaving and going down south for a few years. And I went down to Rueville. It was a difficult thing. It was not easy for me. And a uh, congregation of 2,000, very elite congregation. I was, I was the expositor of Nairobi. Uh, and Rueville was, was not easy to go to. And the congregation was totally white. And uh, on day one, the first meeting we ever had, I said to the, to the church, we, we're going to be a multiracial church. Within a, a few years, this church will be 50% black and 50% white. We'll be 50-50 in a few years. And uh, they all said, yes, they thought it was wonderful. People, things were beginning to change, and uh, 
people were getting, almost getting ready for apartheid maybe to, to go. The, the day's its end was obviously getting a bit near. So people said, yeah, yeah, great, wonderful. And uh, they, they, they thought that was a good idea. Except when it began to happen. When it began to happen. And uh, guys from the local township, poor, destitute, uh, began to come in. I, I must tell you how it happened. It, it happened in an amazing way. I began to uh, train the, the deacons and the elders in, in EE, Evangelism Explosion, which our, our team will know all about. And uh, some amazing things happened. I, I trained all my deacons in EE methods. And uh, some, some very interesting things happened. You've given me nine minutes. I think you're going to be a bit more than that. But uh, one, one day the deacons went out, have, having trained all these uh, deacons to go and knock on doors. One day they, they went out knocking all the doors. They knocked on one door. And uh, the door opened, and uh, the house servant answered, a black, a black lady answered. And they said, oh, you know, we've come from Rubel Baptist Church, uh, we, we want to talk to the Buana. And she said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry they're not here tonight, they, they've gone out. Oh, said the deacons. Oh, yeah, it's all right, we'll come back. And they began to walk away. The girl said, but I'm here, you know, I'm here. Can't you tell me about Jesus? And they said, oh, 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 oh yes, I suppose we can. And uh, things like that began to happen, and uh, I used to try to help them in, in these ways. But uh, for a year, we didn't get any. I did, we did not have one single convert for a year. I did all sorts of things, knocked on houses and uh, so on. I put a big, bright yellow sign outside the church, all races welcome. Um... Nobody came, we, we, we got nowhere. Except one day, a, a wealthy black guy from Alexandra Township saw this big yellow sign outside the church, all races welcome, and he thought, I wonder what those white guys in that church are really like. I'll, I'll, I'll try, I'll go once and find out what they're like. He left his car up the road so none of us would know he had a Mercedes. He left his car way up the road and just walked down the road and came to church that Sunday. And it was a good Sunday. People were nice to him. He was welcomed and uh, enjoyed the service, enjoyed the preaching. Thought it was okay, these, these guys are genuine. But never came again. He never came again. He just came in once to test us and see, see whether we were really sincere. Well, time went on. And something else that I must tell you about, in Alexandra Township, there was a black... There was a, a white Dutch Reformed dominee. You know what a dominee is? is a, a senior pastor. And uh, he lived in Alexander Township, which was, in those days was illegal, but, but he did. He lived in, a white guy lived in the black township. That was illegal, but he did it. And uh, the local Dutch Reformed church loved him. He was a great guy, looked after them, represented them, argued their case before the, the Rand Administration Board and all these, all these people. So they, they really loved him and... Uh, he really protected them from the things that used to go on in those days. Then one day, his name, his name was Fricky Conradi. And, but one day, Fricky Conradi was killed. That's why I never met him. I never met him. He was killed in a car accident. And then one day, my wife said to me, I, I just think the Lord wants me to go to Alexander Township today. And I said to her, 
no, you can't, because, you know, I'm using the car today, another church car, but it's in the garage somewhere. I don't know how you're going to get there. He said, no, no, the Lord told me to go today. I'm going today. And I said, I don't know how you're going to get there. He said to me, well, I'll get a lift to the edge of the town, then I'll just walk in. I said, yeah, okay. So she got someone to give her a lift to the edge of Alexandra Township. She walked in. And she walked into the first street, which for some reason is called Second Avenue. I don't know why it's called Second Avenue, because it's the first one. But she walked into the first street, which is called Second Avenue, knocked on the first door, and said, you know, I'm a, my name's Ethan, my, Mrs. Ethan. I, you know, I come from Ruville Baptist Church down the road. My, my husband's the pastor there. And uh, when she went on, there was a meeting going on. There were sort of 20 people there, and a meeting going on. And the lady who was leading the meeting said, oh, Oh, yes, we know about you. My brother, who's a rich guy, visited your church a year ago and left his Mercedes up the road and came to see what you were like. And we hear you're good people. Welcome. Come on in. Come on in. The meeting was led by the sister of the guy who'd visited us a year before. And the meeting was about what they should do now that Fricky Conradi had died. They would say, what do we do now? You know, this white guy, he, he helped us, and, and, and you know, it's only white guys who can really uh, represent us with this apartheid government. What do we do now that Fricky Conradi is gone? And we stepped into the shoes of Fricky Conradi and began to do for them all the things that uh, Fricky had done. And then Putco. Do you remember Putco? Those of you who come from South Africa, Putco, which was the bus, the bus company in Johannesburg, heard that we were ministering to, to, to young black people from Alexander Township. And without our asking, not, not, not from our kind of choice, they decided to redesign the bus route. And they would stop the bus at 2nd Avenue, Alexandra, and they would drive down Louis Border Avenue, and they put a bus stop outside Ruville Baptist Church. And within a couple of weeks, every single Sunday, we had two busloads of young people coming from Alexandra Township, and the church began to go forward, and all sorts of things happened. It's, it's nine o'clock, I mustn't keep you here to midnight, but I could. Um, all sorts of things began to happen, and people began to be saved. Well, I could tell you many things, but I, I, I want, I want, I'm trying to be practical and I want, I want to jump over a bit to something else. So that's how I got involved. It had a lot to do with James 2, and uh, I could say more about that as well. But uh, that's how I got involved in that sort of ministry. But over the years, I've, I've often said to congregations, especially in South Africa, but also in India and uh, all sorts of places, I've often said, if you want your church to grow, you find the people that nobody else wants. You go after the people that nobody else wants. And that's what I used to do in uh, South Africa. I've done the same in Mumbai. I've done the same in many places in Mumbai. I've persuaded churches to go after the Marathi people. You know, the elite in Mumbai are English-speaking. One, one lower, layer lower, they are Hindi-speaking. But the lowest of the low are the Marathi-speaking. They speak the language of Maharashtra, the state in which Mumbai is to be found. They are the poorest and the neediest. And I, I could tell you stories of what happens when you go after the Marathi people. The lowest 
firstly, as economically, the lowest people you can find. I don't mean low, low in status or the image of God. I mean low in, in money. You know that. I understand. But, um, but I, have to, I have to tell you something because uh, I'm trying to be practical. When I go to a church and I say, you've got to start going multiracial, you've got to go after the immigrant. Do you know there's a lost tribe in Britain where there's not one single known Christian? You might think of unevangelized tribes in, 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 in India or, or in Africa. Do you know there's, there are unevangelized tribes in Britain? I don't know what the statistics are at the moment precisely, but do you know... Last time I looked into it, there was not one known Bangladeshi Christian in Britain. Plenty of Bangladeshis, but not, not one known Christian. There is an unevangelized tribe in Britain. Do you know that? And uh, it may have changed since last time I looked into it. But uh, I've often uh, said to, to churches, go after the people that nobody else wants. But uh, from time to time, a church listens to me. Someone says, yeah, good, this is great, we'll go for it. And when that happens, I say, oh, Lord, please, what have I done? What have I told them to do? I mean, it scares the daylights out of me when someone says, yeah, fine, we're going to go for it. And I'll tell you why. Because my experience is it's only on about the sixth attempt that they get anywhere. The first time they go, they make all sorts of mistakes. The second time they go and some, some they, they, things collapse, it's normally over disparity of money. When some church, which is fairly well, well to do, starts saying to poor people, no, we, we, we want to help you, we, we've come to you about Jesus. Well, the disparity of money gets in the way. And, and I could tell you all sorts of stories. I, I think of a church in Cape Town who, who I persuaded to go multiracial. They're very multiracial today, highly successful nowadays. But uh, years ago when I tried to persuade them to, to amend their ways a bit and reach after needy people in Cape Town. Uh, terrible things happened. Some, some, some guy became the, uh, the church treasurer and then ran away with the money and the news got around, this, this white church wants people, if you're poor, you go, they'll give you a job there and uh, terrible things happened. And my experience is that you, you make mistakes. You get exploited. Poor people know how to squeeze money out of rich people. And they, if, you, if you say, well, anybody who, who comes to Jesus will sort of help you, you'll have 10,000 tomorrow morning. Unless you handle money rightly. It's not easy. And I could tell you many stories. My experience is that it takes about five dummy runs. It takes about five dud attempts where you make all the mistakes and do all sorts of things and, and calamities come and people steal your money and, and, and guys, are, sort of tramps and hippies come in because they hear that you're being magnanimous to the poor. It causes so many problems. When, when the church says to me, yeah, yeah, we're going to listen to you, my heart sinks. And I think, now, now, the next 10 years, I'm going to have problems on my hands. But on the sixth attempt or, or whenever, Round about the sixth attempt, they begin to get somewhere. And people begin to get saved. And I tell you, when you have a truly multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-everything church, it is the most enriching thing. I, I just can't put into words how, how enriching it is. 
people of other cultures, people who contribute all sorts of different ideas and you, you have to adjust to all sorts of new ways. It is the most enriching experience. You, you will love it, but it takes a long time to get there. It, it, you have to persevere. You, ten, you tend to make mistakes. You, you start doing the wrong things. You, you, you flatter people. I remember people in Ruval. Some guy in Ruval went to Alexandra Township and went to some guy and said, well, you're so poor, come and live with us. And some destitute kid from, from Alex lived in some, the home of some rich guy in, in, uh, in the middle of, of uh, Johannesburg. It, it did not work. It, it, it was the wrong thing to do. I could tell you many of the things you mustn't do. I spend my time with, with guys from South Africa trying to get into interior of Africa, telling them what they must not do. So many things you must not do. And so it's no easy option to go after the poor. It's not, it's not an easy thing. But I want to tell you, it is worth it. It is worth it to see people being saved and to, to, find, to find somebody who is so much poorer than you are. And yet, when they come to Jesus, they are trusting God. Within a week, they know more about faith than you do. James 2.5 says, has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith? And that's what happens. You choose some guy and he gets saved on a Monday, but he's absolutely destitute and doesn't know how to live. By Tuesday, he's got more faith than you've got. You, 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 you thought you were his pastor. Within a couple of days, he's your pastor. And he's telling you things about trusting God that you never crossed your mind in, in, in a thousand years. I remember talking to a girl in Nairobi once. Uh, someone I, I knew well, I knew the whole family well. I'd stayed with their village, I'd lived in their mud hut, I knew every single member of that, of that uh, Luo family in the west, west side of Kenya. And I said to her once, her name was Esther, I said to her, Esther, you know, I, I know you're, a, you're a, a prayerful sort of lady. I want, you, I want you to tell me, how did you come to start praying in the way that I know you do? He said to me, well, well, Pastor, I'll tell you a story. She said, you know, you know, there's 12 children in our family. You know them all, and I did. And I'm one of 12. And uh, my sister's only a, a year older than me. And we both went to school at the same time. And we were both in the same class. And we came to the end of primary school. And we both were taking the same exams. But somehow, because we were close sisters in the same year, in the same place, in the same family, the same everything, when the results came, the two kids got, got muddled up and only one name appeared when actually there was two children. And when you know of how many tens of, even hundreds of thousands who do exams at a certain time of the year, getting justice done, if there's some mistake, is totally impossible. Anybody would know. There was no way in which she could correct the, the error. So she said, we both did the exam, but only one of us could, pass, could go on to secondary school. And I knew it wouldn't be me because I was the youngest of the two. So I, who knew that I could pass this exam, and I knew that I'd done well, I was just obliterated from the records. And you know what happens when you fail primary school exams? You're sent out into the bush and you just look after the sheeps and the goats. And she said to me, I was just sent out into the bush, and you know, I, I, was, bright, I was a bright kid at school, but uh, when the exam time came, I, I dropped off the system, and, and that was the end of life for me. There was absolutely no way we should ever have any further education, and I was sent out to look after the goats in the bush. She said to me, there was only one thing I could do. 
You asked me how I learned to pray. That was when I learned to pray. I prayed morning, noon, and night. I pleaded with God somehow to get me into a secondary school. And one day I found myself talking in tongues. I didn't even know about tongues. I didn't even know what was happening. But one day I just found myself talking in a language I didn't know. And God, you want to know how I learned how to pray? That's how I learned how to pray. And then she told me of, and one day somebody told her about NYS, the National Youth Service, where you could go get a kind of paramilitary education, almost sort of a kind of, almost like an army. But they gave you an education and they trained you in a profession. And, and she came through. When I knew her, she was saved. She was a member of Crisco Baptist, uh, Crisco uh, Fellowship. She had been through education. She had a profession. She was doing well in life. If you want to know how I learned to pray, it was because I was so poor. I was so destitute. I was flooded. My life was finished forever. There was only one thing I could do, was to, was to pray. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. You don't need to be rich in faith when everything's there for you. Uh, the scriptures say, how can a rich man enter the kingdom? doesn't mean how can a rich man get saved. It means how can a rich man enter into the blessings of the kingdom of God. He doesn't need anything. He's, too, he's looking busy, looking after his house and getting ready for his holidays and pay, pay, paying for his new, his new car. He's so busy. I mean, he doesn't need faith. He, he's all right. He, he's adequately equipped. How, how's he going to inherit the kingdom of God? He's too busy anyway. He can hardly get to church. How can a rich man enter the kingdom? It's almost impossible. Is, is it easier for a camel to go through the eye, the eye of a needle? It's poor people who know how to pray. It's poor people who become rich in faith. It's poor people who, 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 who can do nothing. I mean, what, what do you do if you're, if you're destitute and you're poor and you're living in some, some slum? But what, what do you do? Well, all you do is you pray. And when you've got time in your hand, what do you do? You just visit your Christian friends. You have fellowship. You talk. You go to church. Crisco Fellowship meets every single day. Morning, morning at 6.45. Lunchtime at 1 o'clock. Evening at 5 o'clock. We meet three times a day. Every single day of the week. Every 20, 364 days a year. We'll leave you free at Christmas Day. What else do you do? I mean, when you're poor, what else do you do? Nothing else to do. You, you can't go out to the cinema. You've got no money. You, you, can't, you can't go on a big holiday. Poor people don't have holidays. God has chosen the poor. If you ever go after them to find, to bring them to salvation to Jesus, you get into their blessings. And they, they teach you. And you, you learn of the treasures of the kingdom. And you start finding that they do things, the people of a different culture, different tribe, even a different class, do things in a different way. Uh, but sometimes you enjoy that way more than your own way. And he goes on and on, and you get rich in the kingdom of God. It's not easy. You go after people that nobody wants. You fail again and again and again, but you persevere. In Britain, what would that mean in Britain? Well, I would think it means going after immigrants. I think it would mean going after East Europeans. I think it would be going after people who've got no job. It's not just hand, giving handouts and giving money away. Don't, don't ever do that. Don't build, don't build relationships on money. Build relationships on fellowship. Build relationships on, on the gospel. Don't let money be the foundation of your, of, of your relationship. Don't let money even come into it. Let, let, let your friendships and your relationships be built upon the gospel of Jesus. And I can tell you, it's heaven on earth. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, had a great sympathy for the poor. He, he, he loved poor people. And yet Spurgeon used to say, I, I don't really reach them, Spurgeon would say. You know, I love them and the, they're, the, they're the, the great ones of the earth, Spurgeon would say. But, but he would say, those Salvation Army people, 
they, go, they, they reach a level of people that I can't reach. Spurgeon used to say that. There were people out there who went after people that, that Spurgeon, who was a little bit more elitist and in, in, in uh, Norwood, I think it was, the kind of people he was reaching was, was not the poorest of the poor. And he marveled and wondered at what the Salvation Army were doing. Go after the poor. Won't be easy. You'll make lots of mistakes. Go after people that nobody wants. Promise you, God will pour out blessing upon you. Praise God.